0: As you're getting settled in, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the passage referenced a moment ago, Matthew chapter 11. The title of today's sermon is simply, The Invitation. As many of you, if not all of you know, i recently came down with COVID and was thinking of what you're always prescribed whenever you get sick. It's go home, take medicine, drink plenty of fluids and get plenty of rest. And to somebody who, to any of you who like to keep busy, who keep a busy schedule, go home and get rest are two of the, that's one of the hardest things in the world to do, isn't it? You mean get rest. When you say get rest, I hear go home and be lazy, right? How can I go home and get rest when there are so many things that need to get done? What do you mean get rest? Some people have different, various people have various ways of getting rest, don't we? Some of us like to engage in hobbies. Maybe you like to garden, which I don't understand, but share your garden with me. We would be happy about that. Some people go on vacation. But have you ever come back from vacation and said, I need a vacation from my vacation? And it would seem that all of the ways, whether whenever we actually try to get rest in this world, we can never actually find rest which inevitably ends up causing us to be even more tired and for some of us those who I mentioned a bit ago who like to stay busy getting rest whenever you hear that that's such a terrible word because again there's so much to get done and there's something in us that feels like rest equals laziness rest equals doing nothing it equals being unproductive but whether it's in exercise or in intense study, or any other thing, or you're sick, sometimes the best prescription for you is rest in order for you to truly then be productive. And all of that is well and good. But the most important rest that we need is rest for our sin-sick soul. And it is certainly the rest that we cannot find in this world. And try as we might to find that rest in this world, whether it be in in keeping even busier or in engaging in some sort of addiction or uh, some other type of sin, whatever it may be, we try to find this rest for our soul and we can't find it. And inevitably, our soul becomes even more weary and heavy laden. We're more tired at the end than when we began. What about you this morning? Is your soul sin sick? Is your soul tired from carrying the burden of trial? Is your soul weary and tired this morning? If so, I want to bring you this morning the very good news of the very open invitation to come to Jesus. With that in mind, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And as we read it, I hope that we will see that in Jesus' invitation to us, he's inviting us to know him. He's inviting us to submit to him. He's inviting us to find rest in him. And he's inviting us to learn from him. Let's read. This is the word of the living God. At that time, Jesus declared, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, we come to you. We pray that you have received our song as a sweet-smelling aroma before your throne this morning. We pray now that you would open up our eyes, the eyes of our heart, ears of our heart, that we could see great and wonderful things in your word and that we could hear great and wonderful truth from your word. I pray that you would help us to see clearly, to love what we see and to apply what we see all for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. I want us <clears throat> to begin by considering the context in which we find our passage this morning. Chapter 11 begins with John the Baptist sending word by his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the one to come or if they should look for another. The question is one about the true identity of of who Jesus is in asking this he was of course asking if Jesus is the Messiah are you the one to come are you the anointed one of the Lord to this Jesus responds with a very brief summary of all of his miraculous works and this was a way of saying that yes this Jesus was indeed the one who was to come only the one, the one anointed of God could do what this Jesus was doing. Then down in verses 20 through 24, we find Jesus pronouncing woes upon Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. A woe was known as the prophet's curse upon someone. This was a denunciation of a people in the strongest of terms. And why is he pronouncing woes upon these cities? Because they did not repent upon seeing the works that Jesus was doing. They did not see that this was the coming one. They did not see that this was the anointed of the Lord. They did not see that this was the only son of God. They didn't see, and so they didn't repent, but instead their hearts were hardened. But then Jesus says something very interesting that ties into our text today in verse 21 and verse 23, as he is pronouncing this woe upon Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for not repenting upon seeing Jesus's works. He then mentions other people who would have repented had Jesus performed those same miraculous works in their city. Jesus knew that Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would have repented had his miraculous works been done in them, but Jesus did not perform those miracles in those places. In other words, God knew they would have repented had he done this one thing, but God did not do the one thing that would have led these people to repentance. I want you to hold on to that, and we'll revisit that in just a bit. But I want you to see that this chapter is on concerning the subject of the true identity of Jesus. Not merely who he is in name, but who he is as the Son of God. And being able to see him as such and responding in kind. It is in this setting that Matthew writes in our text, in verse 25, at that time, at that time. Jesus declared now I will confess that commentators men much wiser more brilliant than I'll ever be they are largely split on what they think this means but to me let's the easiest way to understand this is in the immediate context of chapter 11 that is to say that we are still still dealing with the topic of revelation namely the divine revelation that reveals Christ as the Son of God and His kingdom. But we cannot know God through human effort, can we? Let's look at the prayer that Jesus offers up. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. This section is opening with Jesus's offering up of a, a prayer of praise to his father. Now, I read from the ESV, and it has the word thank. I thank you, Father. But it seems that a better translation is offered in several other really sound translations. And they put the word praise. Well, that's very interesting. I praise you, Father. Notice that implicit in this prayer is a statement of Jesus' own identity, isn't it? He's saying, I praise you, Father. He's calling God Father. If this is his Father, then that would make this Jesus the Son of God, wouldn't it? This is a statement that is implying his own deity. Now, I know that might seem like a small detail, but in reality, it is a very big deal. It matters greatly that Jesus is the Son of God. It matters greatly that he is God, that The word became flesh, that he is God in the flesh. Jesus was not just a very powerful, a very spiritually blessed, a very uh, good prophet or very good teacher. Jesus, as he walked this earth, was very God in the flesh. And my friends, without this truth, we lose the entire Christian religion. But it is this truth that the religious elite of his day and many others did not have the eyes to see. I want you to notice the next thing that Jesus says in addressing his father. He calls him Lord of heaven and earth. This is a way of saying that God is the sovereign ruler over all things, both heaven and earth. There is nothing over which God does not exercise his supreme authority. But then he said, he goes on to say that, as supreme ruler over all things, God has seen it fit to hide or to conceal these things from the wise and understanding. These things likely being a reference to the revelation of God in his kingdom. Think of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum from the last section. Here Jesus says that the Father has hidden these things, that is, that he has. Hidden the revelation of Jesus from the wise and the understanding. In verse 23, he asks a rhetorical question of Capernaum. He asks, Will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be exalted to heaven? Evidently, Capernaum was in some way displaying a prideful heart. They thought to elevate themselves to heaven. And this is what is being meant here as the Father hides the knowledge of the Son from people who are just like that. The wise and understanding people who trust in their own wisdom and understanding. You see and you know, man in his own wisdom and intellect, by his own power, he cannot see Jesus for who he truly is. He might be able to say really nice things about him. He might have a really high opinion of who Jesus is. He might think him to be a great example of kindness and perhaps even morality, but he cannot see and know Jesus in a saving way in his own efforts. Just as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you remember several weeks ago, we were in that text. Back then, there it was saying that The wise don't know God. This is not meaning that no wise person has ever come to know the Lord or that none ever have. What Jesus is pointing us to is that coming to intimately know the Lord is not hingent upon your own efforts. It does not depend on what you bring to the table. In other words, many of us were eating, feasting rather, probably during Christmas, weren't we? And sometimes, don't pretend like I'm the only one, sometimes you look at the person, everyone has labored extensively to provide some sort of food for everyone to eat, and then somebody shows up and they have nothing in their hands and they want to eat more than everyone. And you look at them like, you know what? Lord, please help me practice grace right now, right? Or I'm the the only sinner in here, I see how it is, okay. Okay. But you understand. But when it comes to salvation, it doesn't work that way. The only thing that we bring to the table of the Lord is hunger. We bring nothing of value to add to it. It depends entirely on the sovereign grace of God. Now I know that many fight against this truth. Many say, my God would never do that. My God would never hide himself from anybody But what does Jesus say in response to this truth? He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you do it this way. I praise you, Father, because you exercise your sovereign rule by revealing yourself to whom you see fit. Divine revelation must be divinely revealed He says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. Jesus shows us that God does indeed hide this knowledge of God that saves from some. But he also graciously dispenses this knowledge to what he calls the children of the world. Now, just as the mention of the wise and and understanding does not exclude all smart people from the knowledge of God, we know that's not true. Here, by using the word children, he's not including every child in the saving knowledge of God. That is to say, it's not a literal, he's not meaning children literally, but he's referring to He's saying, children, in a way that you must come in simple, childlike faith and just believe. You must come as a child with nothing in your hands to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the the cross I cling. What joy this should give us as the Lord, who is Lord of heaven and earth, There's not some far away distant deity who requires us to scale the side of an intellectual mountain in order to come to know him. Instead, he reveals himself to those whom he wills regardless of whether they're as brilliant as those who sit in the ivory towers of academia or as completely unable to understand the profundity of an infinite God as a child. Depends not upon the individual, but on God's gracious will. Jesus picks up this theme in Matthew 16, doesn't he? You know the text. He asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? So the disciples answer, saying some very nice things that people say about Jesus. Well, they think you're a great guy. They think you're this and they think you're that. But they never get to the heart of the matter. So he turns to his disciples and say, well, who do you say that I am? Peter responds correctly for once in his life by saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter understood the question. It wasn't what's my name, it's who am I? Jesus responds to Peter by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Who has then but my Father who is in heaven. Peter did not understand who Christ truly was because he was more wise than other people. He didn't make a better decision than other people have made. He wasn't more noble. He was nothing spectacular in and of himself. No, God the Father gave Peter eyes to see who Jesus truly was. And my friends, so it is with us today. If you know Christ, it is because the Father has opened your eyes to see him as wonderful, lovely, and glorious. We ought not kick against the fact that God hides himself from some, but rather rejoice that he reveals himself to any. And we see that here, don't we? That God is willing to reveal himself to us. Look at what Jesus says. No one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He doesn't say only we know each other, everyone else is excluded. He also says that the son does choose to reveal himself to the world. Jesus explains that only the father and the son share this perfect relationship wherein they both possess perfect knowledge of one another just as the father is pleased to hide the fullness of the revelation of his son from some and reveal himself to others or reveal his son to others so Jesus hides this revelation from some and reveals it to others the son chooses to reveal him that is to say that both the father and the son are perfectly unified in this way of operating. Remember when you were a child, or for those of you who have children, there's always the one lenient parent, right? Well, go ask your mom. Ask your mom. I know if I ask mom, she'll let me do it. Or I know if I ask dad, he'll let me do it. Dad will definitely let me jump off of the house, for sure. Don't ask mom, right? Right? Well, it's not this way with the triune God. They are both perfectly unified in this revelation. The son is not more lenient, so to speak, in revealing God to people, nor is the father less willing to reveal God to people. Instead, both are willing to reveal the triune God to the world. And we just celebrated perhaps the greatest evidence of that in the Christmas story we find that truth plainly evident as god the son came down to the earth sent by god the father he took on the likeness of man and dwelt among us but what does the writer of hebrews say of jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of god that he is the exact imprint of his nature jesus does not retreat from man that none might know the father instead he came that he might reveal who God is and his nature to the world. Those who trust in their own self-righteousness, who trust in their own wisdom and their own, and their own self-sufficiency, who are clothed in pride, they cannot see him for who he is. They don't understand who is this Jesus, what's so great about him. And so they reject him entirely, opting to try on their own to find their own God and Earn eternal life. Paul says it this way. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world does not know God on their own. So then, try as you might in your own power to find yourself a higher power. And you will find that all you've done is groped around in the dark and found nothing. Instead, the world, with eyes shut, attempts to fashion for themselves a God of their own understanding. And this amounts to nothing more than taking a piece of wood and carving an image upon it, overlaying it with gold and bowing down to it in worship. All of that is to say that you cannot come to know God through all of the understanding in the world. But you can know God. In coming, in childlike faith, knowing that you have nothing of your own to offer him and simply believe. And when you do, my friend, you will find rest for your weary soul. With the rest of our time together, I want us to consider five aspects of this invitation that Jesus makes for us in verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a very popular passage, and one just full, exploding at the seams with meaning. Surely we find here the heart of the gospel message in its simplest form. Come to me. It's the most interesting placement for this statement, isn't it? Jesus was just saying, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. The Father has hidden the Son. He was just saying this. And then now we see Jesus extending an open invitation to all. We see the tension of both God's sovereign choosing and man's responsibility. God is sovereign over all things. And also we are responsible. You might begin to feel like saying, well, if the son hides the father, the father hides the son, who can repent? Who can possibly know God? Who can be saved? And then Jesus' wonderful invitation, come to me, all of you. Come to me, all who labor. This further reiterates God's willingness to reveal himself to those who come to him. Notice that in Jesus saying, come to me, he does not add any prerequisite to who might come to him. He doesn't say all of you wise in the world, all of you understanding, all of you of noble birth, all of you of great intellect, all of you who have your life together, come to me. For he says quite the opposite, doesn't he? That those are the kinds from whom this glorious revelation is hidden. He doesn't require that you be better dressed than everyone, that you polish yourself up, that you get your life in order, that you make yourself right before God, before coming to him. He simply says, come. Not only, though, does this statement not carry any prerequisites, but it also nullifies any reason for delay. This invitation is an urgent one to come and to come now, today, this hour. Jesus once called a man who said, let me go bury my father first, to which Jesus responded, let the dead bury their own dead and come. And so it is for All who hear the message that Christ continues to speak throughout the generations, do not presume to have tomorrow. Do not presume to have more time. Do not presume to believe upon God on your deathbed. No, come today. Believe upon Christ today and find rest for your soul. We are also, we are invited to know God. This is the second aspect of this invitation. The first is that all are invited. The second is that we are invited to know God. Now I'll grant that this is implicit in the text. It's not explicitly stated by Jesus. But we do have the immediate context, don't we? As we said a bit ago, that he is displaying God's sovereignty and revealing God to whom he will. And then he invites us to come. Surely in coming to the, the... to the Lord, we are coming to know the Lord and know him in a saving way. Christ said, if you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He says in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Well that sounds like our text, doesn't it? What did he give him this authority for? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He goes on to say, and this is eternal life, that they know you. that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God the Son and God the Father. The Father has a people that He has given to the Son. All that have been given to the Son by the Father come to the Son, and the Son gives the saving knowledge of both the Son and the Father to those people. The gospel call to come is not one of rigid religious duty, it is an invitation into the sweet, sweet knowledge. Of the triune God. And thirdly. The third aspect of this invitation. Is that we are invited to rest. The word labor. Is referring to working to the point of exhaustion. So it's not so much referring. To the action of hard work. As much as it's referring to the effect. Of working hard. I mean think about it. Have you ever had a long day of work, what's the one thing that you want to do when you get off of work? You want to rest. And what's the one thing you usually cannot do after a long day of work? is rest. And here Jesus is saying, come to me if you're exhausted from that work and I will give you rest. Heavy laden gives us the sense of a load being placed upon you to the point of being heavily weighed down. You're surely familiar with the Pharisees that were of the religious elite during the time that Jesus walked to the earth. They were the masters of the law of Moses. They were meticulously applying the minutia of the law to their lives, but always missing the bigger picture, the heart of the matter. And on top of that, they were adding rabbinical tradition to the already very thorough law of Moses. That is to say, they were burdening the people with rule-keeping. It was heavy. It was tiring work to be laboring in the field of self-righteousness. In pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees and the religious elite, Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They aren't willing to help you anybody they just put all of this burden of rule keeping on top of people you can see then that it would have been exhausting to try to keep the law perfectly according to the letter of the law while also keeping rabbinical tradition the people were weighed down with the burden of duty and Jesus also said in his pronouncement that you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The Pharisees were not entering the door to the kingdom of heaven themselves. They did not have saving knowledge of God themselves and they also prevented people from having that, didn't they? In saying all who labor and are heavy laden, he's speaking of those who have been crushed under the weight of the law. Those who see their own lack of righteousness in their inability to keep the law. They couldn't do it. Peter speaks this way in Acts chapter 15. The apostles are gathered together to discuss the matter of whether or not the Gentiles who were coming to faith needed to also live according to the law of Moses. Peter speaks up and he says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. No one could keep the law. Some loved their self-righteousness in their rigid religious rule keeping according to the law. But others were driven to despair under the weight of the realization of their own unrighteousness according to the law. None were able To fulfill this righteous requirement. No one. Nobody. Was able to do it. Except for one. And his name is Jesus. Sent in the likeness of man. To do for man. What man could not do for himself. Now everything is changing. Now Jesus is proclaiming good news. To the sin sick soul that you can now come and find rest. No longer do you need to toil under the cruel taskmaster of sin. No longer do you need to uselessly attempt to earn your own righteousness. You can now come with your weak knees and your tired hands to Jesus and find rest for your soul. The word for rest here refers to being given a break from work. To be refreshed. The the Greek literally reads, I will rest you. Not arrest you. I will rest you. No longer does one need to work tirelessly and aimlessly to get to God, but now we can trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to find rest rest from exhausting labor and rest from the yoke of the law. Surely this applies beyond the law, doesn't it? After all, Jesus doesn't make that explicit either. He does, however, simply say to come if you labor and you are heavy laden. Have the cares of this world or the trials that you are in, the effects of living in a sinful world, have any of these things been weighing heavy upon your soul? Jesus bids you come and rest. And once you've come, my friend, continue to come. You will find that there are times in your life when you can sense the ebb and flow of your spiritual life. That you can sense your spiritual vigor waxing and waning to you this morning. And any time you remember these words, the message is to come. Come to Jesus. I want you to see, forth that we are invited to submit. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ says, come and rest. Come and take my yoke. What is he saying? A yoke was a wooden bar that would be placed around animals that would work the plow, but it was also used by people. They would fashion a piece of wood that would go around the neck across your shoulders. Surely you've seen the images of old where they have the wood across the neck and a pail on one end and a pail on the other end. That was a yoke. And it was to make carrying heavy objects a longer distance easier. It was a word that was also used figuratively to referring to refer to submitting to teaching. Jesus is saying to take His yoke upon yourself. It's a way of saying to submit to Him. Put your life under His control. You no longer work for yourself or for your sin or your own self-righteousness. But instead, now Jesus is your master. Now, at first, this seems like a contradictory statement, doesn't it? First, He's saying, come and rest. Now it sounds like you're saying, come and work. Well, which one is it? Is it rest or work? The answer is yes. You come and you submit to him. But submission doesn't sound like freedom from the law, does it? It doesn't sound like freedom from religious rule keeping. It kind of sounds like freedom kind of sounds like I can do whatever I want. And I can live my life according to how I see fit. And we, under, we think that way because we misunderstand freedom. Freedom is not having the ability to do whatever you please. Freedom is no longer being shackled to your own sinful desires so that you can now do what pleases God. True freedom is found in belonging to Jesus Christ. Think of the old analogy of a fish out of water. If you liberate a fish from the shackles of water, have you truly set that fish free? No, you haven't. It can't breathe outside of the water. If you liberate a vehicle from the shackles of only driving on the road and take it into the sea, have you truly set that vehicle free? Maybe if that vehicle is on its last leg, but that's a different story. But how about flowers? Flowers? When you liberate a flower from the ironclad bondage of the bush, have you truly set that flower free? In the same way, man was designed by God and for God. His own sinfulness leads him to believe that in fulfilling his own desires, that he will find freedom, but sin only enslaves you, and then it kills you. James chapter 1 Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed, not by Satan, but by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The reality is that plenty of people want the come to me and find rest, Jesus, but far fewer want the take my yoke upon you, Jesus. That is, we are content with a Jesus who is a savior But we're not content with a Jesus who is Lord. But my friend, hear clearly this morning. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord. In order to come to Him to rest, you must also take upon you the yoke of Jesus Christ. And the last point is that we are invited to obey. What a strange invitation, isn't it? He goes on to say to learn from him. Learn from him. It's a word that comes from the same word as disciple. So one could rephrase what Jesus is saying as submit to my lordship and become my disciple. Well, that sounds very simple, doesn't it? We ought not fear coming under his lordship or becoming his disciple. Disciple because he's not like the taskmasters of old that we once had. That of our bondage to sin or imprisonment under the law that Paul speaks of in Galatians 3. This yoke is put upon us by someone who is gentle and lowly in heart. Meaning that he is meek and mild and he cares for you. Have you ever thought of Jesus in those terms? That he cares for me. He cares about what happens in my life. He cares that I'm heavy laden. He cares that I'm weary. He doesn't stand over us with a whip, ready to condemn us the moment we fail in the smallest area. Instead, we stand in His finished work. And when we inevitably fall short again, He continues to beckon to us, Come to me. Come to me. When we inevitably fail in another area of sanctification, He doesn't give up on us and say, you're hopeless, you're useless, you're good for nothing. But instead, He says again, come to me. Find rest. This is an invitation to rest from our slavery to sin and self-righteousness and to submit to and learn from a gentle and lowly Master. This gentle and lowly Jesus will not overburden you. Some people think the Christian life to be one of misery, that you don't get to do all of the things that you really love to do for the rest of your life, and you have to white-knuckle your, the rest of your life that way. But that's not true, is it? Obedience to Christ for the rest of your life means joy and peace. It means rest for your soul. He says, my yoke is burdensome. My yoke is heavy. My yoke is hard to bear. No. He says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. When we attempt to live under the law or to earn our own righteousness before God, we will labor until we are heavy laden and all to no avail. Now, does that mean that being a Christian is easy? Of course not. Is it easy to confess your sins to one another? Is it easy to be sanctified? Of course not. And any of any of you know that it is not. But it is a joyful submission as a bride to her husband. This yoke is easy because the Spirit empowers us to obey the Lord. This yoke is easy because obedience now springs forth From a place of love, gratitude, and rest. And not merely rigid religious rule keeping. This yoke is easy and burden is light because the one who places it upon you loves you. The one who places his yoke upon you cares for you. We no longer need to toil to earn right standing before God. For it is freely given to us through the imputed righteousness of Christ. You need only come tired, weary, heavy laden to the foot of the cross. And when we come to him, we are invited to know God, to rest, to submit to him, and to follow him. Very simply, this morning, we ought to all come to the one who has come to us. Let's stand. As is our custom, I will pray and then we will sing one last song together and then we will be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, we thank you. We praise you. Just as the Son has displayed for us, That You reveal Yourself in the way that You see fit. That You hide Yourself from the wise and understanding. And You reveal Yourself to those who have nothing to bring You. Nothing to offer. No leg to stand on. No hope of their own. You offer the invitation freely to come. Lord, I pray that we would do that. That we would heed that invitation, that we would RSVP a thousand times yes, that we would come to you, Lord. Help us in our weakness when we are prone to feel ashamed when we fall. We want to hide from you. It's as if we can feel your holy gaze upon us. But help us to sense as well the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus as he beckons us to come. That we wouldn't run from you, but that we would come back to you over and over again. Help us as we go this week and into the next year. In the name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen.